Jeff. Thanks for joining us today on an episode of The Circuit. Just to kick it off, I would love to hear more about you and your new role at Customers Bank. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I manage the Midwest region for Customers Bank, most specifically the venture banking group, where we provide um, both treasury management and advanced debt solutions for early stage technology and life science companies. That's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to that role? Certainly. Yeah. So um, at a kind of young age, even in college, I knew I wanted to go into the sort of entrepreneurial ecosystem, um, whether it was to work at a startup or start a company or start a fund at some point. And so had the privilege and opportunity to do that at a pretty young age. Um, so was a co-founder of a, of a, a early stage VC fund in Indianapolis a number of years ago and uh, collaborated on that effort with a number of just great people throughout the Indianapolis um, and even broader kind of Midwest uh, community. Too many names to list, but just many, many dedicated to um, providing uh, sort of capital formation that really stage uh, capital for uh, companies in the Midwest region. So rather than them going to the coasts and fleeing, um, it was an opportunity to have some homegrown opportunities and so uh, grew with that firm over time, also uh, uh, went on, uh, left and went to Chicago um, and joined another VC fund up there um, and were, was able to source deals, um, uh, close them, sit on boards, continue to assist them in growth opportunities, and then eventually leading to some sort of M&A or, or exit event. Um, and so really have grown um, in the venture industry for the bulk of my career. Also had an operating stint um, at a more of an industrial tech startup in the city of Chicago. Um, and so now, you know, on the banking side, um, have sort of seen all sides of the table. Um, and so it's, uh, it's been a unique and fortunate uh, set of circumstances to, to grow up in the venture industry for the last 20 plus years. Yeah, for sure. One of the things we talk about at TechPoint all the time is how can we help make sure that we're keeping startups growing and thriving in Indiana. And so I can really connect with that and appreciate that part of your experience for sure. Um, so for those of us who aren't familiar with venture debt, can you give us a little bit of an overview about what that is in general and how does that kind of fit into the overall venture capital market? Certainly. Yeah. So um, to step all the way back um, by some accounts, one in every $5 in the venture ecosystem is a debt dollar. Um, so it is a uh, sizable uh, dollar amount um, that goes into uh, this market each and every year. Um, at its core, you know, it, it, when you really look at the the benefits of what venture debt is, uh, and I'm speaking from the banking perspective, the senior debt perspective, we can get into kind of the wider continuum in a minute, um, but it really offers um, a, a few key Benefits. Number one is it's largely non-dilutive. Um, you know, number two, it's a multiplier uh, for the VC as well as for the founder because um, you're taking uh, an equity dollar, you're adding a debt dollar, and so you're really expanding the size of a given round of a, of a company. And then the third is we are these sort of purpose-built institutions for venture. So. Um, it is a very unique work stream, workflow, market dynamics, et cetera. And so having folks that are kind of born out of that um, industry is really, really helpful um, for doing this at scale. 
when I step back away from the banks, um, there is a broader continuum of uh, funding for debt for early stage companies, even late stage for that for that matter. And it's what we call the NBL community, the non-bank lender community. And so uh, that could be folks on the early stage side doing almost like revenue-based financing um, all the way through to mezzanine and then pre-IPO type financing. We typically stretch from, I would say, seed plus all the way through to the IPO um, and underwrite a particular type of risk reward profile um, that sort of fits in the strike zone of, of a bank. Um, whereas the non-bank lenders, um, because they're not so much regulated and they're not coming at it from a, a senior perspective per se, they can take an incremental level of risk above and beyond what we can do. Um, and so accordingly, they charge a higher cost of capital. Um, so you really just have to find what works well for you at that given you know kind of point in time. If you're really looking for venture debt, um, you're really trying to solve for three things. Uh, one of three things, I should say. You have a working capital issue. You have a growth capital opportunity. Or number three, you just want an insurance policy. Um, because in our world, you don't necessarily have to draw the debt. You know that it's standby capital um, at the ready when you need it. So if it's in a term loan, for instance, you've got a, a draw period where you can say, hey, I, I'm ready to, ready to go do that. There's an acquisition or there's an aqua hire or there's something that presents the opportunity. And so those are the three sort of primary use cases for it. In terms of the form factors that it comes in, um, AR lines of credit, so accounts receivable. So we're looking mm -hmm. at a percentage of your AR base. Number two, MRR. Um, so if it's a SaaS business and you have a, um, a regular recurring monthly revenue based on a year or longer contract, we can provide a multiple off of that and extend credit based on that. Number three is what we call a non-formula line of credit. Um, and what that is, it doesn't have a borrowing base. Um, and it's sort of a hybrid between what I just talked about on the MRR front and what I'm about ready to get to, which is called a term loan. And term loan typically has the longest maturity. So if the other things I talked about have a, call it a one to two year maturity, but term loans have four year maturities associated with them. And so what we typically do is look at an interest only period uh, for, you know, call it 12, 15, 18 months, sometimes even longer. Um, and then after that, there's a dedicated amortization period. Uh, that what could be 24 months, could be 30 months. It just depends on how we're kind of curating that type of term loan. The reality is, is that in our world, um, mo more often than not, your debt deal is going to get refinanced at some point because these businesses are growing so rapidly. Um, and then they raise new rounds is that what worked maybe for everybody kind of nod their head saying, yeah, this, this is great for day one. If you fast forward one to two years, it's a different company. Um, the revenues may be coming in in a different way. Um, their capital opportunities may be different. And so at any point in time, we're taking from that toolkit what we believe is the best debt structure at that particular point in time to be most impactful to that capital structure. Typical cost of capital are uh, we, we price off a of prime. Um, so it's a floating rate instrument. So we have a spread over prime. And then in most cases, there's a very, very small uh, percentage of warrant coverage and or a success fee to try to help us get to that kind of risk-adjusted rate of return that we are targeting. And then the goal is um, to, to really work with our clients over the long term. And so we've got companies that we started with at a seed plus kind of phase, and then watch them grow over the course of four, five, six, seven years. And so 
um, it, it really is a long-term relationship. And the business that starts at day one, as I, as I mentioned before, it could be three, four, five, six hundred people by the time it's ready to sell. So it's it's really a journey. Absolutely. I know you mentioned that you're looking for deals that fit the risk profile for a bank. Are there specific industries or business models that you all are particularly interested in? Yeah. So for us, we we sort of uh, we break it into what we call the high growth business category, and some people have different vernacular innovation economy companies, etc. Um, but I'd say it really breaks into two buckets. One is technology. Um, and for us, technology can be hardware, software, that's most of what we do, material sciences, and ag tech. Um, and even ag tech can get kind of bifurcated into this next category, which is life sciences. Um, and so that's a whole world in and of itself. Uh, but all of those businesses typically have attributes of high growth, um, really defensible technologies with a moat around them. Um, and then a, a sort of buyer universe or a look or an exit universe of people saying, this is, this is really intriguing to us because it's rare that we're ever backing a company for, you know, 10, 20 years. It just doesn't typically happen. Most of these businesses are, um, gazelles, if you will, on that hyper growth. For sure. So, um, in life sciences, ag tech, hard tech, some of the industries you mentioned, things are obviously changing very rapidly as more innovation is happening. So how do you stay up to date with the latest trends and innovations so that you can make those decisions on who you are going to be working with? Yeah, it's a great question. You're staying up on the trends. Um, one of the, one of the benefits of our role is that we are working with, um, a wide array of VC funds. Um, so th that, as I mentioned, there's a debt continuum of where you can actually choose a debt provider. Well, there's a venture continuum as well from the equity perspective. And so there are pre-seed funds, there are seed funds, there are seed plus funds, there's series A, B, C, D, all the way through. And then you have sector specialization, right? So somebody's really deep into material sciences, someone's really deep into software. So, uh, we are, uh, privileged to work with so many of these different VCs and they're looking at deals well in advance. So there's, they're, they're asking themselves the exact same question you asked me, which is there's sort of bleeding, there's frontier tech, bleeding edge tech. And then you try to go into the domain of when that tech is earlier, but ready for them. Well, when your holding period um, is up, it has hit the mainstream and that has created the, the growth opportunity. And so by virtue of working with all the funds that we do, we're able to take those data flows and really understand what's working, what's not in different verticals, um, in different product solutions and what have you. And so by indexing to VC, that's how we're typically uh, keeping abreast of all of these. And then not to mention, we're a national group. So we've got offices all over the country and people all over the country. And so we're seeing different trends in different areas, notwithstanding the geography, but also those verticals, those companies in aggregate at scale. Awesome. So we've talked about the growth factor. What are some of the other traits that you're looking for when you're deciding whether you're going to finance a company? Sure. So typically we come in um, at or around uh, a fresh round of equity capital. Um, and so with that uh, equity, we can then amplify around um, by, by a meaningful percentage. And so I'm not saying all the time, but it's most commonly when we're entering in like a series A, series B type round. Um, the second thing is, so timing is one of them to answer your question. The second one is, what is the, what is the business model? Um, and why 
are the VCs excited and why do folks believe this has a, uh, a unique and, and um, differentiated competitive advantage? One that has wherewithal, right? One that can grow into the future. And so uh, just like the VCs did their diligence on the upfront, um, we're going to do that as well. And then um, the third thing is, is we're looking um, to understand what that capital runway looks like for the business and where it all stems from revenue, gross margin, operating margin, and then kind of going from there. Not to say that any business we're backing is profitable, not even close. Um, we're, we're very accustomed to understanding operating losses. That's our world. But it's the revenue trajectory, it's the gross margin trajectory, and it's you know, what that pathway looks like where if, if the company and the VC said flip a switch, it could be profitable five, six, seven years from now, that's where we're really trying to understand and say, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a healthy business. A lot of the earlier stage startup founders that I speak with who are working on raising a seed round or a series A round and maybe are struggling and aren't able to get venture capital investment from VCs, do you see any type of financing that you could offer as a good fit for those folks who maybe aren't you know, going to follow what you're saying you're looking for from the VC perspective? Yeah, for us, typically, if if there's not a VC involved, it's not something we're going to be able to do because that's kind of our, an anchor to our credit thesis. But as I mentioned before, that non-bank lender community, absolutely. That could be a very um, interesting place to to talk to folks and see, depending on what kind of business it is and where is it traction-wise, um, there's presumably a group out there that would have receptivity to to funding something like that, for sure. Okay, got it. Um, I'm going to transfer topics a little bit now and talk more about kind of the market at large. I know you mentioned that you were familiar with companies who aren't generating a profit right now. Um, I know that with the market changing, I've heard a lot of different VCs recommending to their portfolio that they do fund to break even. Are you seeing any changes in that model with your financing? Yeah, so really... Um... Two things I would I would say on that. One is uh, historically, any deal that we would look at, the VCs would be funding it for probably an eighteen month runway ish, right? So you get twelve get to twelve months, and then you spend six months fundraising, um, and either it's going to be an insider led round or you're 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 going to seek an outside lead, right? That's kind of sort of the industry norm for the last twenty years or so. Um, that cycle was truncated to a, to a degree in 2020, 2021, um, because there's so much capital in the system. Um, and there were so many VCs pursuing some really intriguing deals that those funding cycles, which were historically at that 18 month, they were like 12 months or less in some cases, which was pretty, pretty surprising. Um, now in, in today's age and era, um, I would say there's a heightened level of emphasis on capital discipline. Um, and I'd say this has been true for 12, 18 months uh, now. And when the when things got uh, uh, tighter from a macro perspective and then from a micro perspective, more specifically within VC, I would say that the challenge that most VCs had kind of put upon their exec teams at their portfolio companies was get to 24 to 36 months of runway. Um, we don't know what we're in, but we want to make sure you've got the capital wherewithal to do it. And so we saw a pronounced level of fixed cost sort of cutting. Um, so whether it, that 
manifest itself within human capital or um, other costs that, you know, nice to have, maybe not a must have. And I'm not saying companies are operating to the bone, not even close. But what I am saying is that every dollar is getting scrutinized to a degree that these businesses can feel safe and sound to be able to prosecute their business model for the, you know, for the next couple of years plus. And that if the VCs are seeing the growth um, that they're desirous of seeing, that that company can either go back to either raise an inside round or an outside round um, and have that, uh, that toggle to, to really put your foot on the, ga the gas and grow or go steady state and just be uh, kind of clipping the treetops in terms of break even. Another piece of the market changes I want to talk about is Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so that was obviously a big shakeup, not only for the banking industry, but also for the startup community. How has innovation banking in your practice evolved since then? Yeah, I'd say um, the first thing I kind of say to everybody is I, it, it, was, a, it was a big hit to the, to the system. Um, and it was tough to see so many clients... VCs, founders, just, I mean, just the, the, the way it reverberated through the VC ecosystem, um, was, was sort of tough to watch and, 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 but, you know, it happened. And I think we're, um, a lot of people were on the other side of it now to, to, a, to a large extent. And so I, I would say that there's been, um, a fair level of stability in the overall senior debt ecosystem. SVB found it, I think, a really good home. Um, I think there has been some additional competition that has come into the market with some folks that may have left SVB or some other some other institutions. And I would also say that there's been competition through banks that may have been in this market but had a very particular focus to now increasing that aperture um, because they've been able to pick up people or particular expert, domain expertise to to say, hey, we're going to go full continuum versus just one segment of the market. And so. Um, there has been an increased level of competition, but I think with competition become, comes, um, you know, the ability to continue to innovate. Um, and so whether that's in terms, um, whether that's the delivery of service um, and investing in your tech stack or your team, for instance, there's different ways to really be able to, to offer what a lot of uh, portfolio companies and VCs are seeking. And so that, that certainly is something that we wake up every day and think about how do we deliver the best core product. And on that theme of delivering, delivering the best core product, could you share a success story from your previous experiences and what you've kind of learned about the key ingredients for success when it comes to startups? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we've seen um, just some companies scale at unprecedented levels, right? Um, and I would say that uh, without giving names, just from a confidentiality perspective, but I can give you an analog for, for, for what, what happened. Um, and even here in the Midwest, right, which is the, the best part of it. Um, you know, we had one company that had the right product with the right team, with the right VCs at the right time. And I'd say it's those four things that kind of come together and enables a business to kind of coalesce to success. Um, and it's not necessarily overnight. But you know it when you see it, and you're like, this is special. This is really neat. Um, and, you know, there's an old saying that my dad would always tell me. It's like, you know, son, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Uh, my dad was a military guy. And so it's not to say that uh, not everyone goes into a deal thinking there's going to be success. Absolutely. You wouldn't do it otherwise. Um, but sometimes it just takes a little longer. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes it gels super fast. 
sometimes it, it could take another incremental year or something like that. And so, you know, all in all, um, VCs are in the business of, of underwriting risk. Um, and, and, and we are as well, right? And, and reward though on the other side of it. And so when you see that recipe of those sort of four things work, it's uh, it's a sight to see. It's, it's pretty neat. My analog would be, you know, sort of like an NFL team coalescing right into the playoffs and then being able to, to go to the Super Bowl. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's such a fun thing to watch working with startups from their very early days until they get to an exit. Um, awesome. So I just have one last question. As we're looking ahead to the future, uh, what excites you the most about the impact of tech on it? all of these industries we've discussed? And how do you envision customers being contributing to that? Sure. So I think there's certainly um, a lot of headline news of AI and its impact to businesses and, and what have you. And I, it, it's, it's, it's warranted, for sure. Um, but there's a whole other what I would say, technology renaissance underway. Um, and from my purview, I certainly can see things nationally, but I can see them most especially from a Midwest prism. I have a 13-state region that I manage um, as far east as Ohio, as far west as Dakota. So I have the privilege to see so many cool things kind of ground swelling up. And what are those cool things? If you think about the buckets we talked about earlier, so whether it's material sciences, whether it's ag tech, whether it's life sciences, whether it's um, software companies, um, there are so many cities in the Midwest that um, due to a number of trends, so whether it's things coming out of universities, whether it's the onshoring trend back to the United States, and whether it's just the, the true spirit of entrepreneur, entrepreneur spirit in country, in, in, in the United States, um, what we're seeing is tons of businesses forming, right? and some uh, of these geographies have particular domain expertise. So take Ohio, for instance. Um, they have been uh, awarded uh, multiple facilities for semiconductor production. That is going to have a lasting effect on that state from years to come. Um, take Indiana, for instance, which had the exact target exit, which was huge. It was great. And you see this multiplier effect of entrepreneurship into a city that had certainly had wins before, but for each incremental one, you're then enabling another one and another one, another one. And so that kind of that binomial distribution starts to split, split, split and get bigger, bigger, bigger. And that is a fascinating thing to see. And it's been something that I've observed over the last 20 years. And so um, while the coasts certainly get a lot of attention and it's warranted, right? The Bay Area, Boston, New York, et cetera. Um, there is a renaissance underway in the Midwest that should not abate anytime soon. And it is very diversified and will have a lasting impact. So that's that's the humbling part of our job is to is to see that unfold right before our eyes and see the, the successful founders, the successful VCs, and then the, the impact of the community. It's just it's just awesome, awesome. And so, how that relates to us, um, we play a small part in that, and that's the fun part of being part of those capital structures, being part of that stakeholder map, working with those folks, and then seeing um, how that has you know kind of pervaded into a particular geography or economy is great. And so we're continuing to invest in our products, our team, our capabilities uh, to make sure that we're ready to meet the, meet the, uh, the, the future. Congratulations. That's super exciting. Um, so we have founders and VCs who are the listeners of the podcast. If they're interested in working with you or getting to know the opportunities with Customers Bank, how should they get in touch with you? Email is best. 
Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us on the circuit and, um, we're looking forward to working with you moving forward. Thank you. Thanks for having me.